the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with Brian McClanahan. He's the author of How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. Really? We'll talk about it. We'll also talk with Elizabeth Slattery. She's the uh, a legal fellow and appellate advocacy program manager at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Institute for Constitutional Government. Wow, that's a mouthful. We're going to look at the uh, Supreme Court. Their session has resumed. Hearings began yesterday. We'll take a look at some of what they're uh, going to hear and what's coming up next. We're also going to talk with Roger Gannam, Esquire. He's an attorney. He's assistant vice president of legal affairs at Liberty Council. The Senate Judiciary Committee has recommended the FBI investigate Planned Parenthood based on uh, videos that disclosed uh, uh, alleged ties to selling baby body parts for significant profit. We'll talk about uh, that letter um, from the uh, Judiciary Committee to the FBI and the FBI's response and whether or not there's going to be an investigation. We'll finally talk with Joss Temple. He's the host of the DIY Network's Disaster House. We're going to discuss um, home disaster tips. I'm not suggesting your house is a disaster, but in the event of a disaster, we're going to, he's going to offer some tips on what we might uh, do to prepare for that uh, possibility. So that's coming up later in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, of course, much attention is being focused on the Los Angeles, or rather the Las Vegas shooter, uh, he apparently sent tens of thousands of dollars overseas, according to federal law enforcement, revealing uh, new information that could shed some light on what sparked him to unleash the deadly massacre. The revelation came with questions about the whereabouts of his girlfriend, uh, who left the United States before he committed this hor- horrific attack that killed some 59 people, injuring at least 515. Police said this afternoon that they considered uh, her a person of interest in the investigation. She was expected back in the United States sometime today. Investigators are looking into whether uh, the shooter sent the cash to his girlfriend amid conflicting reports that she's in either the Philippines or Japan. In addition, a U.S. government source says that federal investigators have interviewed an immediate relative of Paddock's girlfriend. This relative said the family found Paddock unstable and he made relatives uncomfortable. Investigators uh, noted the money crossing hands was a significant amount and authorities uh, we're trying to uncover who received the cash and where it uh, currently is. It was not immediately clear when the money was transferred, but they believe within the last week or so. Senior law enforcement in the Philippines also confirmed that they uh, are reviewing a photo that was taken around 2012 or 2013, purportedly showing Paddock in the country. The photo was posted online uh, earlier today by a relative 
uh, of his girlfriend. And if confirmed, it's the first documented evidence of the shooter visiting the Philippines. I'm not sure whether or not that's significant, but at least gives some trail. And again, we're talking about 2012, 2013. The photo shows a man who appears to be Paddock sitting down at a table of food and talking uh, to a woman, possibly his girlfriend. Two other women are in the photo as well. Again, how useful is that? I have no idea. Well, the windows in the background of the photo um, uh, are typical uh, Philippine, uh, Filipino style uh, in most uh, middle-class urban homes. So again, what's the uh, connection? It's, it's not altogether clear. We do know that he apparently photographed uh, this, uh, this tragic series of events. Uh, he photographed himself. He photographed the room that he was in, or rather videotaped, and it's not clear what his intention was with regard to Uh, to that uh, videotape being made. Now, ISIS, on two separate occasions, the first uh, early on, took credit for the event, and they have come back a second time and done the same. And some are suggesting, depending on what's on the video, what he says and so on, it may or may not confirm that there was some evidence of radicalization or connection at all. He doesn't fit the typical profile, although I'm not sure there is a typical profile, a 64-year-old wealthy retiree, but uh, again, the investigation is continuing, and they're anticipating that once the uh, the girlfriend uh, returns home, uh, that will give them an opportunity to speak with her, and she is uh, expected to have at least some information to shed some light on his state of mind before she left, and perhaps during uh, her time away if she communicated with him at all. As I mentioned, uh, the shooter set up a camera inside his hotel room to capture his shooting rampage. Other surveillance in the hallway to alert him of uh, cops uh, if they closed in on him. So he not only was videotaping himself, but he also had an an opportunity. He had set up video so that he could watch in the hallway to uh, alert himself of anyone approaching to try to end his rampage. He had at least one lens set up uh, to tape himself as he unleashed, um, well, essentially hell on thousands of unsuspecting uh, concert goers several hundred yards below his uh, ritzy casino suite, according to ABC News. Apparently, knowing uh, police officers would eventually catch up to him, he also wired cameras in the hallway outside the room so he could see when the heat was uh, getting close. The Daily Mail support, uh, reported, rather. So what does this reveal about him? What are the common traits of um, this incident and the shooter and others? The investigation is continuing. Well, there was one shooter on sun, on a Sunday night, but there were many acts of heroism, and uh, we do well to focus on them. Rob uh, Ledbetter's battlefield instincts kicked in um, quickly as bullets rained overhead, and it's uh, it's uh, challenging to consider the environment they're in. The music is loud. You hear a sound off in the distance. It's not immediately clear. Most of us aren't familiar with what the sound of a machine gun is, and it's not expected. You're in a place where fireworks would be expected. But this 42-year-old U.S. Army veteran who served as a sniper in Iraq immediately began tending to the wounded, one of several heroes to emerge from the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. With a massacre in Las Vegas that left 59 people dead, more than 500 injured, there were acts of compassion, countless heroics that officials say saved scores of lives. There was a man, uh, one survivor uh, knows only as Zach, who herded people to a safe place. There was a registered nurse from Tennessee who died shielding his wife. And like many people in the crowd of some 22,000 country music fans Sunday night, 
Ledbetter heard a pop, pop, popping noise, which would be more familiar to him, but he figured it was fireworks. Then he saw people dropping to the ground when more booms echoed in the night air. He recognized the sound of automatic weapons fire. The gunman, identified as uh, the 64-year-old retired accountant from Mesquite, Nevada, created his own sniper perch inside the 32nd floor room at the Mandalay Bay Casino Hotel. Uh, the uh, Ledbetter said the echo, it sounded like it was coming from uh, from everywhere. You didn't know which way to run. You didn't know if the shooter was just outside the area you were in. He was at the concert with seven people, including his brother, who was shot and injured, and his wife. They found cover in the VIP area of the concert. Once out of harm's way, he turned to injured strangers, as did so many others. Thanks to a man who took the flannel shirt off of his back, Ledbetter says he put a makeshift tourniquet on a wounded teenage girl whose uh, face was covered with blood. Some random guy, I said, I need your shirt. He took it off. Uh, he's now a mortgage broker. He's a resident of Las Vegas. He just gave me a f- the flannel off of his back, he said. Ledbetter said he compressed someone else's uh, shoulder wound, and he fashioned a bandage for a man whose leg was shot through uh, by a bullet. There was a guy that looked like he had a through and through on uh, on his leg that we just uh, put a T-shirt around and just did a, a bandana tie. And the stories uh, go on and on and on of husbands shielding uh, wives and um, others, uh, an older man shielding teenage girls, saying that his life uh, had been a full one. Theirs was just beginning, putting himself in harm's way. One shooter, hundreds of acts of heroism, those who were there at the concert, others who came to the site to help. And perhaps uh, putting that into perspective helps us deal with the aftermath of this uh, horrific and tragic event. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Brian McClanahan. The book is titled How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. He used to be the darling of the right. Now he's the darling of the left. But who is Alexander Hamilton? We'll talk about it when he joins us. Well, the morning after hundreds of country music fans were shot at a Las Vegas festival, President Trump called on God to comfort grieving families and victims. Oftentimes, that's what presidents do. He said, and I quote, Scripture teaches us the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He referenced Psalm 34, 18. We seek comfort in those words, for we know that God lives in the hearts of those who grieve. Not exactly accurate theologically, but you get the idea. Well, the psalm he quoted ranks among the top verses that Bible readers turn to after mass shootings. Bible Gateway analyzed uh, search patterns surrounding the Sunday night concert shooting, as well as 18 other major incidents of violence over the past decade, including Virginia Tech in 2007, Sandy Hook Elementary in 2012, San Bernardino in 2015, and Orlando's Pulse nightclub in 2016. Sad that there are that many to reference, and of course, that's the short list. Well, among the sites, 150 million-plus visitors a year, the four verses that saw distinct spikes in readership around those shootings were John 16:33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Also, Psalm 34:18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Romans twelve nineteen. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for the for God's wrath, where it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now you think about the shooter in this case. He um opened fire, uh, killed fifty nine, wounded some five hundred and fifteen, took his own life, 
And one thinks uh, justice will never be served. And yet in Romans twelve nineteen, it makes very clear that God will repay and that's what he himself says. Also, Psalm eleven five: the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Well, overall, uh, these go-to verses address God's deliverance from the brokenness of the world, and there is plenty of that to observe, a condition many onlookers feel acutely during times of national tragedy, but are quick to forget. Passages from the Psalms in particular regularly appear among the most searches and most shared verses in Scripture, and they take on particular significance as Christians look to the biblical text to express laments and frustrations, Pastor uh, Louis Giglio and Christine Kane shared Psalm 3418 in response to the attack in Vegas, while David Platt uh, ranked it as the top prayer for families and victims. Elsewhere in the Psalms, Beth Moore referenced Psalm 7-9, Carrie Job, Psalm 9-9, and Anne Graham Lotz, Psalm 23-4. Several verses associated with the end times also trended on Bible Gateway after the mass shootings. I mention it because this is what some of your neighbors and coworkers are thinking about. After a tragic event, uh, says uh, Stephen Smith, uh, he noted that a Christian website called End Times Headlines was even featured on Facebook's own crisis response page after the attack. He writes that after a tragic event, some people turn to apocalyptic verses. For example, after the Dallas police shooting in July of last year, the top topic on openbible.info were violence, signs of the end times and the end of the world. Uh, This is what the Bible search guru Stephen Smith says. White evangelicals worry less about being caught up in a mass shooting, 38 percent, than other life-threatening events like a terrorist attack at 66 percent or a violent crime at 61 percent. That's according to a Pew Research Center data released earlier this year. Along with mainline Protestants and the religiously unaffiliated, evangelicals were less likely than Americans on average to worry about, worry rather about being a victim in a mass shooting. Pew also found that about a third of evangelicals favored tighter gun regulations compared to half of Americans overall. These are white evangelicals. Earlier research uh, showed that evangelicals were the only religious group in which a plurality, 40%, say that putting more emphasis on God and morality in school and society is the most important thing that could be done to prevent future mass shootings. Evangelical leaders feel more strongly about gun legislation, according to a survey that was released by the National Association of Evangelicals last month. Among denominational heads and ministry presidents, most of whom own a firearm themselves, 55% said gun laws should be stricter. Evangelical leaders have nuanced views on the subject. Leith Anderson, national, uh, or rather NAE president, says they accept the Second Amendment, but also deeply grieve when weapons are used to take innocent lives. He tweeted on Monday to offer prayers and to condemn the violence in Las Vegas. At least 58 people, we now know 59, were killed, more than 500 wounded in that shooting. Victims include a 29-year-old graduate of Union University of Southern Baptist School in Tennessee who died saving his wife. I made reference um, to that uh, earlier. In other coverage, uh, we're learning about those unsung heroes uh, like this man who saved his, uh, his wife by covering her body with his own. um, Sarah um, Sanders Huckabee had Huckabee Sanders had this to say yesterday in the press conference, referring to those acts of heroism by ordinary people. She said that these kinds of stories should challenge us all, that courage is only theoretical until put to the test. Yet it's remarkable the extent to which tragedy and fear have spawned bravery and selflessness. Uh, Imagine the shock and surprise of going from a moment of joy to a moment of terror. Then imagine overcoming the instinct to save yourself and instead looking for another person to protect. That's what these people did. 
and um, uh, we must remember their sacrifice. You'll notice I don't mention the name of the shooter uh, very often, uh, only to identify him. I don't want to uh, turn the attention uh, so much on the individual who's responsible, who may have been seeking that kind of attention. Rather, I think it's important to focus on the victims and others who helped to save lives uh, by uh, laying down their own or by protecting and guiding others to a safe place. Albert Moeller uh, on the subject uh, points out that an evil, uh, an act of pure evil is searching f- uh, for meaning in Las Vegas is the challenge of not only this day, but in every uh, major act of uh, evil that we witness. He writes that evil points to a necessary moral judgment made by a moral authority greater than we are, a transcendent and supernatural moral authority. Today, most Americans awoke to news from Las Vegas, writing, of course, on the day that we all woke up to the news. That is nothing less than horrific. For so many in Las Vegas, Sunday night must have seemed like the night that would never end. In the face of such overwhelming news, we naturally seek after facts. We want to know what happened and when. We want to know who did it. By mid-morning, the facts were staggering. More than 50 people were dead, hundreds wounded, after a lone gunman opened fire on a music festival from a perch in a hotel room 32 floors above. The attack was deadly, diabolical, and premeditated. The shooting is already described as the worst in American history. The gunman, believed to be Stephen Paddock, killed himself as police prepared to storm his hotel room from which he had aimed his deadly gunfire. The facts emerged slowly and are still emerging. He had no notable criminal record. He had worked for a defense contractor, owned a private uh, aircraft, was known to own guns. He was reported to like Las Vegas for its gambling and entertainment. No one seems to have considered him a threat. His brother, contacted after the massacre, said that the family was beyond shock as it crushed by uh, as if crushed by an asteroid in Las Vegas and beyond hundreds of families are crushed by grief and concern. More than 50 human beings very much alive just hours ago are now dead, seemingly murdered by random order. The facts will continue to come as investigations continue. We need facts in order to steady our minds and to grapple with understanding. We must have facts and yet we can easily overwhelm, be overwhelmed by them. Some facts will not be facts at all. National public radio helpfully and honestly ended its news coverage of the massacre With the words, this is a developing story, some things uh, get reported by the media will later turn out to be wrong. We will focus on reports from police officials and other authorities, people trying to answer those questions. But the facts of who and what and where and how will still unfolding point to an even more difficult question, why? Why would someone kill a fellow human being? Why launch an ambush massacre upon concert goers listening to country music? Why premeditate a mass killing? Was he driven by some obsession, fueled by some grievance? Was he sending a signal or political message as an act of terrorism? Is the answer psychiatric or uh, pharmacological? Our minds crave an answer. Why do we ask why? We can't we cannot help but ask why, because made in God's image, we are moral creatures who cannot grasp or understand the world around us without moral categories. We are moral creatures inhabiting a moral universe and our moral sense of meaning is the faculty most perplexed when overwhelmed by horror and grief. The terror group known as ISIS or Islamic State claimed that Stephen Paddock was a lone wolf attacker who had recently converted to Islam. Law enforcement authorities said there's no evidence of anything related to ISIS or Islam. They've since said they're looking into it. The Clark County Sheriff, Joe Lombardo, he told reporters that he was not sure if the massacre was sending a message as a terror attack. We have and we have to establish what his motivation is first. So far as we know, Paddock had left no note, communicated no clear message. The gunfire tells some story, but we do not know what the story is. We may never know. That troubles us, and so it should. 
Knowing the story and determining the motivation would add rationality to our understanding, but we will never really understand. A massacre by a lone gunman killed 32 people in Virginia Tech in 2007. There are other incidents. One of the main theological insights about evil is that it is so often absurd. It is ultimately inexplicable, unfathomable, and cannot be resolved by human means. So we look to God, we look to his word, we look for answers. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we'll talk with Brian McClanahan. He's the author of How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Alexander Hamilton is the subject of a hit Broadway musical, The Face on Our $10 Bill, one of the most popular founding fathers. But what do you really know about Alexander Hamilton? Well, in his shocking new book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, author and historian Brian McClanahan, he reveals that Hamilton was no American hero. That's right. America's beloved Hamilton actually spent most of his life working to make sure citizens and states could... Uh, could not hold the federal government accountable. His policies set a path for presidents to launch secret and illegal wars, and he wanted to make sure American citizens couldn't do a thing to stop the government's overreach. He was a duplicitous man whose personality and ambition led to an America and a constitution at odds with the one he publicly supported in 1788. Well, this is, according to my next guest, the real story of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, The man who has been glamorized through the hit Broadway musical is not the man Americans think he is. Despite his uh, gift for, re- for rhetoric and high reputation as a founding father, he was simply not to be trusted, neither then or now. Well, I, I trust that I have piqued your interest. Well, Brian McClanahan is the author of Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers, The Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution, and The Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes. He holds an MA and PhD in American History from the University of South Carolina. Born in Virginia, he received his BA in History from Salisbury University in Maryland. He lives with his uh, wife and kids uh, near Phoenix City in Alabama. He joins us today to talk about how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on your program. I appreciate it. Now, I wonder if you had set this to music, if people might be more open to uh, uh, to hearing what you have to say. Could you sing a few bars? Right. If I, if I wrapped <laughs> the, uh, the premise of the book, maybe people would be more interested <laughs> in it. Certainly, Hamilton has gotten this reputation now because he's so popular in the Broadway musical as this guy that everyone loves. And and I've said, you know, if everyone loves somebody, then there has to be another side to the story. They can't just be all good and pure. And, and I know the musical shows that uh, Hamilton was a flawed individual, but I think the problem is that we've gotten in this hero worship of Hamilton, and it's particularly those on the right. It's unjustified because, as you, as you led into the segment, uh, Hamilton's vision of government, his constitutional machinations, have done a lot to bring us to the point we are in America today with an out-of-control out of central government, a government that overreaches its, uh, all the time and, and uh, does things that are unconstitutional constantly. So this is Hamilton's real legacy and why we should be very suspicious of that man. Now, I think part of the reason that he has earned this reputation of one that, uh, that people respect is that it depends on where you stop on the timeline, what he said at the beginning, what he said in the middle, and, and along the way. Is it because people look at different, uh, different parts of his timeline that they... Uh, consider him to be a hero and overlook other elements that might be less favorable? How do, how do we get to the point where both the left and the right consider him uh, to be a hero? 
Well, sure. I think because of a lot of Hamilton wrote a lot of things, and he did a lot of things. And so when you, you can look at his entire life and say, you're exactly right. Well, I like this part of Hamilton. This is the Hamilton I like. So for the left, for example, in, in the musical right now, they really like the American story that Hamilton was. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps, came to uh, the British North American colonies with nothing, really, and, and made something of himself as, as a teenager. And we like that. You know, we like this idea somebody can, can do something. He is, he's different than Washington or Jefferson or Adams or Madison. He wasn't born uh, here, and he didn't have uh, this, this uh, you know, proverbial silver spoon in his mouth, so to speak. But uh, Hamilton uh, was was more complex than that. And and so when you look at uh, conservatives like him, because, you know, if you're talking about uh, strong executive authority or suspicion of democracy or this idea that we need to, uh, you know, have some type of very active foreign policy, they like him for that. But Hamilton, uh, in his own life, would often lie to get what he wanted, and I think that's where we have to be very careful with Hamilton. Um, I think Hamilton did show who he was in 1787 in the Philadelphia Convention, and then as Secretary of Treasury. It's that one period between that, 1788, when he was writing the Federalist Essays and when he's arguing for the ratification of the Constitution, that I focus on most in the book, because if that's the Hamilton we're going to believe, then there's a whole lot of work out there that, that goes against that, that refutes everything he said, because his actions speak louder than words. Hmm. In the introduction, you write that the alt-left website Vox recently called the remixed music of the show the soundtrack for a new revolution. All he needs is a man bun and shaggy beard. But is this true? <laughs> Somewhat. Hamilton had, for most of American history, been the darling of the right. So uh, I suppose we, we plant ourselves at one point in history and we're comfortable to be there without looking at the whole of a life and the influence um, that it wrought. Yeah, exactly right. And, and uh, so you have, um, for example, one of my favorite historians, Forrest MacDonald, uh, who's now deceased, but he called himself a Hamiltonian. Now, he's very conservative. And he liked Hamilton's vision of, of society, and Hamilton was suspicious of democracy. Hamilton believed uh, in law and order. We, we like these kind of things as conservatives. We think those are, those are good ideas. But at the same time, when we start railing against uh, unconstitutional government or we start looking at you know, an oppressive central authority, the states have no recourse, when we look at those type of things, and Hamilton becomes the enemy. Uh, he becomes the guy that was pushing that kind of stuff first and foremost. And so we have to be very careful with Hamilton, uh, because it, well, on the other hand, the left can say, well, yeah, you like Hamilton, but he's a big government guy. He, he enjoys a central authority that really has no check on its power. Uh, he, he likes the idea that you can use the necessary and proper clause, for example, to do anything you want. Uh, so, and it has become the you can do anything you want to do clause. You know, when the Congress stands up and says, well, how dare you say this legislation is unconstitutional? It's not because we say it's not. I mean, it is. Uh, we, we, we say this legislation is perfectly constitutional. Constitutional, uh, and so how dare you you contradict us? And that's because Hamilton said, "Look, I know what the Constitution says, but you can read between the lines and find what you want." And so that's the real problem with Hamilton. And, and uh, I think if people knew that, particularly on the right, they would have a, a much more uh, suspicious view of, of the uh, the man on the ten dollar bill. Mm. You make the point that it would be unfair to uh, lay the entire burden of unconstitutional government at Hamilton's feet, but he had help. What about uh, Marshall and Story? That both of these men are celebrated jurists. Uh, talk a little bit about the two of them, and then you you relate uh, rightly. Uh, to the influence that they still have, for example, in the controversial national federalism of independent business versus Sibelius, um, better known as the case that dealt with the constitutionality of Obamacare. Sure. So you look at uh, John Marshall and Joseph Story, again, two individuals that people, conservatives, often like, uh, because, you know, Marshall was concerned about protecting property rights. 
Uh, but both of these guys are doing much to codify Hamilton's uh, unconstitutional vision. And uh, so we wouldn't have had, you know, when, when Hamilton crafted the defense of the Bank of the United States, which he knew was unconstitutional, he knew it. Uh, but when he crafted that, that uh, opinion, and of course Washington bought it, and we get the bank, uh, later on Marshall used the exact same arguments in his decision upholding the bank's constitutionality in 1819. And so uh, over and over Marshall did that as Supreme Court Chief Justice. And then you take Marshall's right-hand man, uh, Joseph Story. Uh, here's uh, Story became a law professor, in fact, one of the most prominent law professors in American history, and he influenced generations of judges and lawyers with the same type of language that Hamilton and Marshall were using through his commentaries on the Constitution, through his lectures. So Joseph's story uh, had a long-lasting impact. You can still find conservatives today who really laud Joseph's story and think that if you read his commentaries, you've really read an originalist opinion of the Constitution. It's simply not true. And then you point out the uh, the Obamacare decision. Uh, you gave it a long definition, but everyone knows it as the Obamacare mm-hmm. decision. Uh, and, of course, John Roberts cited Alexander Hamilton in that decision. Uh, Hamilton argued before the Supreme Court in 1791 uh, about a tax, and so this is exactly how Obamacare was upheld. Uh, so here's Hamilton from the grave uh, allowing a an obviously unconstitutional piece of legislation to stand uh, through his argument. So uh, you, you go through the whole lineage of American history, and these guys just keep coming back and back and back. And, and I think that's why we need to be very careful about all, all these individuals, because their vision of America was really at odds with how the Constitution was sold to the states. And that would be the states still had a lot of, uh, a lot of power in this government. They had a strong role in the government. Even Hamilton said that. But as these individuals get in power and they start working the levers of power, they change their tune very quickly. Yeah, you make the point that Obamacare could also be called Hamilton Care. And you write that uh, don't agree with same-sex marriage, thank Hamilton and Black, opposed to government-imposed transgender bathrooms. Again, Hamilton and the decision of Marshall and Story are at the root of the problem. Don't like the welfare state, Hamilton is the culprit. Object to the pornification of America, Black's fingerprints are all over it. Our national focus on such vital issues as education, health care, environment, labor laws, marriage, etc., is the byproduct of 200 years of Hamiltonian conditioning codified by several important Supreme Court decisions. So this makes it relevant to 21st century America. This isn't just an historical overview of things that happened back then, but the influence that's reached forward is uh, palpable. Absolutely. And you you mentioned Hugo Black. And and of course, Hugo Black was using the 14th Amendment to apply the Bill of Rights against the states. And so we might think that's a good idea. Well, everyone likes to have uh, freedom of speech and freedom of press and these type of things. But what's happened over time is now the states can't, as I said in that, in that part of the book, uh, they can't regulate pornography if they want to, uh, because the Supreme Court will come in and say, well, you can't do that. Uh, that's, that's unconstitutional. It violates the First Amendment. And so what happens is now we always appeal to the center for all of our civil liberties. We appeal to the center to handle issues like education or transgender bathrooms. I mean, this is something that, again, the state should be able to regulate. If it was, we're talking about the original Constitution, that's a state issue, uh, <laughs> at its heart. I mean, so, so these are issues that are that are problematic for Americans, but we're always thinking we need a top-down solution for everything, and that's Hamilton's design. He wanted to reduce the states to corporations, meaning that they had no recourse. The, center, the central government would pass a law, and the states would enforce it, and the states would comply. And so there would be no uh, wiggle room there for the states to do what they wanted when it came to domestic issues or things that are purely of a domestic concern or local concern. The states had no control over that. So every time a, a person asks a candidate, a presidential candidate, what are you going to do about education? I mean, this is the real issue at, at heart here. It's this idea that the central authority has all the power 
and the states really are, are just administrative subdivisions of the center. And so that's Hamiltonian nationalism coming back to bite us every single time. Hmm. So this is sort of that penumbra, the cloud that, that's between the lines of the Constitution that he played a role in. The principles that were pinned um, originally, there's now uh, apparently um, the, the capacity to revise and see what's not explicitly written there. Um, and Hamilton was uh, at least in part responsible for that reinterpretation of uh, of holy writ when it comes to the Constitution. Absolutely. I mean, Hamilton is, is at heart the real problem when you talk about loose construction and implied powers in America. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about a, a really important and very interesting book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. We'll be singing uh, about that a bit later in the, the next segment. Brian McClanahan is my guest with a foreword by Ron Paul. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with uh, Dr. Brian McClanahan. He has a Ph.D. in American history from the University of South Carolina. Is the author of several books. Today we're talking about how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. Now, early in the book, the chapter is titled Hamilton uh, versus Hamilton. In order to understand his legacy... Um, at, at what point do we do we declare that we we understand him and this is who Alexander Hamilton is? Well, in that chapter, I go through what I, what I talked about earlier, where Hamilton said one thing at one point, then another thing at another point. And so, you know, which Hamilton do we believe? And and I make the point that uh, you know you can believe both of them, but I think that uh, when it comes down to it, we have to again look at Hamilton's actions. Uh, Hamilton in Philadelphia in June of 1787, arguing for uh, an elected king, a Senate for life, uh, uh, reducing the states to corporations, was the same Hamilton as Secretary of Treasury that was trying to do those exact same things. Now, of course, he wasn't trying to get an elected king, but he certainly believed that the executive branch needed to be strengthened beyond what they did in Philadelphia. And he certainly wanted the states to be reduced uh, in power. So uh, that is the Hamilton we need to look at and believe, not the one who authored the Federalist Essays, who was doing a great sales job. I mean, the fact is people still read the Federalist Essays and they think, well, this is what the Constitution means, and they're not incorrect in that. It's just that Hamilton never really believed it. And so uh, what's interesting is when Joseph Story started writing his commentaries, he actually didn't didn't cite those necessarily as definitive uh, expositions on the Constitution. He actually cited the anti-Federalist papers oftentimes to prove his point that the central government was supposed to be very strong and powerful, and he actually said these people were right. Uh, and so that's an interesting way to flip the argument on its head. But uh, Hamilton, uh, as, as Secretary of Treasury, and then Hamilton in, in June of 1787 in Philadelphia, is the Hamilton we should pay more attention to than the one that was uh, arguing for ratification. Let's talk about the influence that Alexander Hamilton has had on the role of the executive. His view was a much more expanded uh, role, uh, and, and we're certainly seeing that expansion today. And uh, again, part of the legacy of of Hamilton's America. Absolutely. Uh, when you when uh, when I was doing the uh, publicity and the for the nine presidents who screwed up America, people often ask me, you know, where did all this come from? We've got this uh, these presidents that are out of control. He even started. You know, I started in that book with George Washington. Of course, Hamilton in Washington's ear the whole time. Um, he's kind of like you know the little devil on the shoulder, telling Washington he should do this or that. But uh, and this is where it comes from. So I wanted to write a book that got into the blueprint for how this executive branch became so powerful. And Hamilton didn't do it by himself. Mm-hmm. Congress kept punting his authority to the, to the executive branch. But Hamilton was laying the foundation when it comes to foreign policy, for example. Uh, Hamilton believed the president had proclamation power. Now, 
There's nothing in the Article 2 of the Constitution that allows the president to do that. But uh, there was a very famous episode where Washington issued a neutrality proclamation where, uh, you know, he said, look, we're going to stay out of war with, uh, with France and Great Britain. Now, that was the right policy. But James Madison took him to task for that under a, a pseudonym, uh, Helvidius is what he, he wrote. And, of course, Hamilton defended it under a pseudonym, Pacificus. And Hamilton actually said that was some of his best work. So uh, they're defending this uh, and uh, proclamation power was very monarchical. I mean, this was considered to be something a king would do, not an elected president. So uh, that particular position, and, of course, Hamilton working behind the scenes as a secret agent. He was he was actually uh, given a designation by the British, Agent Number Seven. This is Double O Hamilton here. Uh, he's behind the scenes uh, trying to uh, work out his own deal with the British, whereas Washington and, and, and Jefferson wanted something else. So uh, Hamilton was on the verge of treason at that point. I mean, this is where Hamilton was doing some things that are very shady. Uh, and that we shouldn't really, you know, we shouldn't give him a passport. I mean, th- what he's doing here is making the executive branch much more powerful than the founding generation intended to be when they drafted the Constitution and ratified it. Now, I don't want to assume that everyone uh, understands the role that Alexander Hamilton played. He, he never served as uh, the executive. What what was the the source of his influence and power in not only helping helping to shape the Constitution, but beyond that, uh, reshape the very principles that he had once championed? Well, certainly, uh, Hamilton was a was a war hero. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Hamilton's uh, actions at the Battle of Yorktown helped win helped win independence for the United States. Uh, so uh, he he was very important there, and of course, he was Washington's aide de camp. So he and Washington were close, and I think Washington actually looked like looked at Hamilton like the son he never had. And so that's where Hamilton had influence. And so when Washington becomes president. Uh, first president under the Constitution, Hamilton is appointed Secretary of Treasury, uh, and he's actually put into office September 11th, 1789, so another important September 11th. Uh, and so at that point, for the next six years, he's Secretary of Treasury. And in the meantime, Jefferson was Secretary of State, and eventually Jefferson bows out. And so when that happens, Hamilton has virtually unlimited control in that first Washington administration. Hamilton actually leaves in 1795 before Washington leaves office. But uh, still, um, he's right. He's drafting. Uh, he's drafting legislation. He's uh, he's working behind the scenes to ensure that his legislation gets rammed through the Congress. And uh, he's again working on foreign policy. He's he's uh, he's pushing Washington to go and invade Western Pennsylvania during the quote unquote Risky Rebellion. I mean, this is Hamilton's work, uh, and he's he's acting beyond the powers of the Secretary of Treasury. He's acting like Secretary of War. He's acting like Secretary of State. Hamilton himself thought he was more Prime Minister than anything else. He really was, in his own mind the de facto uh you know second in government uh, behind George Washington so uh it, it it wasn't any any coincidence that everything hamilton tried to do eventually got done in this in this uh, first few congresses because he had so much influence over George Washington hmm. now you write in your chapter on the rebellion that he uh was uh, was successful in uh, establishing the bank that would assume the the state's debts, then he wanted to influence the the revenue for the the general government for the federal government. Talk a little bit about the role that he played in establishing the the federal government's ability to function because it was uh, was funded. Absolutely. So Hamilton uh, wanted the federal government to assume the debts of the states. Now we all knew that assuming the debts of the general government was perfectly constitutional. It's in the Constitution, but. Madison and Hamilton actually had a conversation in Philadelphia where they admitted that uh, they, that the idea that the general government could assume the debts of the states was going to be unconstitutional. 
And so when Hamilton takes office as Secretary of Treasury, he, he wants it anyways. And so this goes before the, 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 uh, the Congress, and they, they pass it. It's funding of the state debts. And, of course, Hamilton's idea was to create a national debt that they could use to uh, help uh, create the financial system that uh, would, would support, in his mind, the architecture of the government. Now, again, this is unconstitutional. It was only brought through because of a dinner meeting where Hamilton said, okay, uh, if, if I work behind the scenes to get the Capitol moved to a southern location, uh, will you agree, Jefferson and Madison, to help the, help the debt be assumed, the state debts? And they said yes. So uh, still, uh, this was completely unconstitutional. Then you had the bank on top of that, which he knew was unconstitutional because it had been expressly rejected in Philadelphia. So uh, Hamilton was doing things through unconstitutional means to get the financial system. And when you fast forward to 2017, uh, we have a central banking system, the Federal Reserve. We have a tremendous amount of debt. Uh, this is Hamilton's financial system that we're living under, and uh, and it's it's unfortunate because uh, we have a situation where we have a, an unsound currency, uh, a debt that's, that cannot be paid off, and a central banking system that has more power than even Hamilton's Bank of the United States had. So uh, that is Hamilton's legacy in terms of our financial system. Well, it's fascinating to see how much of his legacy has influenced our current a constitutional Republic, and the book is certainly worth a read, especially if you're planning on seeing the musical to get some idea of what is uh, what is our understanding of him today as opposed to what history tells us was actually the case. How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, a very provocative title, a great read, published by Regnery History. Uh, Dr. McClanahan, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. This hour, we're going to talk with Elizabeth Slattery. She's a legal fellow and appellate advocacy program manager at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Institute for Constitutional Government at Heritage Foundation. Uh, we're also going to talk with Roger Ganim, who's an attorney and assistant vice president of legal affairs at Liberty Council. The Senate Judiciary Committee recommends the FBI investigate Planned Parenthood. We'll get the latest on that. And later, we'll talk with Josh Temple. He's the host of the DIY Network's disaster house. We're going to talk about what you need to be prepared for, uh, prepared with rather, in the event that there is a disaster here locally. Well, the Supreme Court is back in session and they're going to hear arguments about gerrymandering, religious liberty, uh, federal employee unions. This week, the high court uh, will hear arguments on gerrymandering. Drawing up political districts is, by its very nature, a political exercise by the legislative branch. How could one determine how much or how little politics is acceptable in the redistricting process? Well, the Constitution doesn't say anything about it other than give state legislatures the authority to draw not only their own state legislative districts, but congressional districts as well. We're here to talk about this uh, latest session of the United States Supreme Court is Elizabeth Slattery. Again, she's a legal fellow and appellate advocacy program manager. Uh, She is with the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. It's good to be here. It's always interesting to look at the Supreme Court when they uh, uh, start a new session, and there are a number of things to watch. Can you give us just a basic overview of some of the more hot-button issues that they'll be covering? And then we'll talk about this latest. Sure. Well, of course, the gerrymandering case, which was argued today, is one of the big cases of the term. They're also going to hear the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. This is uh, the challenge of uh, a baker who refused to make a cake for a same-sex wedding. Um, we will see what, what the fate of the Trump travel ban is uh, now that the Supreme Court has asked for more briefing on it since the administration issued a third version of the travel ban, and they canceled the upcoming oral argument in that case. 
There are also some um, some I- issues involving criminal law, such as uh, the case uh, called Carpenter versus United States, whether police can uh, go to cell phone uh, service providers like Verizon and Sprint and and obtain uh, in- individuals cell phone location records. So those are some of the big cases that are coming up. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you mentioned today, they heard arguments in the case Wisconsin's uh, redistricting law, Gill versus uh, versus Whitford. Um, Tell us a bit about the arguments that were made today and what's at the heart of the case. Sure. So after uh, the last census, the Republican-controlled Wisconsin legislature drew up new district lines, and uh, the, the following election cycle, they picked up uh, a number of seats, um, even though overall they did not, um, it didn't match their, their percentage, you know, of the votes at, at the statewide level. So a group of challengers uh, went to court and they argued that, uh, that this map, uh, the redistricting map, is unconstitutional because it essentially is packing Democrats into sm- a small number of districts and uh, they have sort of super majorities in these districts. And so their theory is that their votes are being wasted. Um, so the argument was today and, uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court has previously said that it's not going to wade into political gerrymandering. You know, it, it of course will hear claims of racial gerrymandering, but when it comes to partisan gerrymandering, it, it's hard to take the politics out of redistricting. Now, as I mentioned, the Constitution doesn't specifically make reference to this, which is the role of the Supreme Court, is to determine whether or not a thing is constitutional. What precisely will they, uh, what impact are they likely to have on this? And is there really a role for the Supreme Court? Now, I know that there was a split three-judge federal panel uh, that invalidated the law, um, the plan for its uh, state legislature earlier. uh, But what role, if any, should the Supreme Court play in this? Yeah, so that's one of the big uh, big issues that's being litigated here. Uh, in a 2004 case, the Supreme Court said these claims are not justiciable. That means courts are not supposed to be hearing them because, you know, we can't come up with a judicially manageable standard. That was the phrase that they used. And so now uh, these challengers have come up with all sorts of different social science metrics for uh, you know, for for claiming uh, proof that different districts are political gerrymanders that cross the line and should be considered unconstitutional. But, you know, if the Supreme Court ultimately uh, decides that, that courts should be hearing these sorts of claims, that's, first of all, uh, going to be involving, um, you know, judges across the country uh, in redistricting and you know, judges are not always the nonpartisan, non-ideological individuals that, that we would hope they are. I mean, just look at, you know, the, the judges that have joined the, the so-called resistance to President Trump, uh, you know, in, in the area of, um, you know, of his travel ban and, and the various challenges to that. So, you know, I think that, that we, should, we shouldn't necessarily think that uh, judges are going to fix all the problems. And the other issue is that, you know, after the next census and, and state legislatures are, are, you know, working on new maps, Almost all of them are going to end up having to be heard by the Supreme Court. And as a practical matter, I don't think that they're going to want to have to review every single redistricting map going forward. Mm. I noted that uh, Justice Felix Frankfurter, uh, some 70 years ago, apparently warned the Supreme Court against getting into the political thicket of uh, redistricting. So this is an issue that's been... Uh, on the fringe for quite some time, given the uh, the new justice who is uh, uh, sitting on the bench, uh, Justice Gorsuch, um, what do you anticipate in terms of the likelihood that they're going to take this up or the disposition of the court 
as they uh, now have heard arguments and will deliberate how to respond? Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned Justice Gorsuch, and he was very skeptical of, you know, relying on this social science uh, and these different theories at the argument today. But, uh, you know, all eyes were, as, as we, you know, very frequently are, all eyes were on Justice Kennedy, and he brought up, you know, some, um, he had a lot of questions for the state, and I don't think he asked any questions of the challenger's lawyer, and he was, you know, seemed to be trying to come up with a First Amendment argument that this sort of extreme partisan gerrymandering would violate the First Amendment because it basically silences the voice of the minority party. So he's he's trying to come up with, with something that he thinks will be a you know a judicially manageable standard. Um, but I guess we'll have to see what, you know how he rules. Now they heard arguments today on the gerrymandering, gerrymandering case. What are they? Uh, do we know what their calendar is? When they're likely to hear the next big case? Um, so, as I mentioned, the Trump travel ban was, was supposed to be argued yeah. next week, and it's off the calendar. That was going to be the next big case. And, you know, a number of the other cases have not been um, have not been scheduled yet. Uh, we only have the calendar through November. Um, so, you know, they certainly have a, a lot of cases that, uh, that we're still waiting to, to see when they're going to be argued. Well, we'll certainly continue to uh, listen and watch. Uh, I know that decisions on these kinds of cases are likely not going to be announced until sometime in the spring. So we have a, a bit of time to wait. Now, would they likely expedite this kind of a case since it has to do with elections? Um, not not likely, uh, since we're not coming up on a, an election where where the district lines are, um, you know, at issue. Um, so I, I don't think that this is one that they would expedite. And this is one that I imagine there will be a lot of hand-wringing over at the court, trying to come up with, um, you know, a coalition of five justices who agree on something, um, you know, in, in reaching a ruling. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of the ones we, we don't see until the end of the term. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Again, Elizabeth Slattery is a legal fellow and appellate advocacy program manager uh, at the the Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Up next, we're going to talk with Roger Gannam. He is an attorney. He is an assistant vice president for legal affairs at Liberty Council. The um, Senate Judiciary Committee had some time back, in fact, it's been months, requested that the FBI investigate Planned Parenthood following the video's uh, release that exposed some of their practices, alleging that they are, in fact, buying and selling baby body parts at a significant uh, profit, which is, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> which is a violation of the law. We'll talk with him about that in a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee recently learned that the FBI confirmed that it received a criminal investigation referral of Planned Parenthood and other groups involved in the aborted baby, uh, baby body parts trade, according to Breitbart News. Well, the FBI's assistant director of the Office of Congressional Affairs, Gregory Brower, sent a letter to the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Chuck Grassley, informing him the FBI received the committee's criminal referrals of Planned Parenthood and that it is reviewing its recommendations. Well, what does all of that mean? I think for many of us who have followed uh, with great interest the release of videos that were uh, quite incriminating of, um, of Planned Parenthood, uh, Sandra Merritt and others who were involved in the Center for Medical Progress, um, who did, uh, many of us believe, a service to the public by making uh, public what Planned Parenthood 
uh, and others are allegedly doing. Well, here to explain all of this is Roger Gannam. He's a, an attorney and assistant vice president of legal affairs at Liberty Council. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always good to be here. Let's let's start uh, back at the beginning. The Senate Committee and the U.S. House Select Panel on Infant Lives both opened investigations into the abortion industry after the Center for Medical Progress exposed its baby body parts trade back in 2015. Bring us from there to the present. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned already our client, Sandra Merritt, mm-hmm. who is being prosecuted in the state of California, along with uh, David DeWyden, for creating these videos that expose the gruesome practice of selling aborted baby body parts. Uh, As a result of the videos they released, the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee and a separate House committee began investigations of the baby body parts business, uh, and that culminated in a recommendation at the end of 2016 to investigate, to criminally investigate these companies, including Planned Parenthood, uh, and to prosecute them as applicable under uh, the existing law. And uh, what these committees found is that the law passed in 1993 to prevent the development of a market for baby body parts had never been enforced against a single entity or company uh, during all the time that law was on the books. And so companies were violating the law with impunity. Uh, not a single administration uh, initiated a prosecution under that law. And so the Judiciary Committee wanted that to change and asked the, the FBI uh, to investigate and prosecute as uh, as appropriate. And what we found out is that the FBI has received those recommendations and is reviewing them, uh, and that's really satisfying and encouraging, especially when you think of someone like Sandra Merritt, our client, who's paying the price potentially with her freedom mm-hmm. uh, to bring this information to the public. So when the FBI says, yes, we've received the information, we're investigating, what does that mean? Do they have the sole authority to file criminal charges against Planned Parenthood? And what discretion do they have or oversight uh, does the Senate panel or panels rather have over what the FBI decides to do or fails to do? Well, that's a great question. Uh, the, the answer, the short answer is yes. The FBI is the federal agency that would be tasked with uh, investigating uh, the, the charges or the, the potential violation of the law against profiting on baby body parts. Uh, if there is a crime discovered, then the Department of Justice, uh, a U.S. attorney, would, uh, would prosecute that crime. Um, they have wide discretion to initiate a prosecution based on, you know, the amount of evidence, based on uh, whether they think they can win a conviction. Um, but one thing we won't know uh, while the FBI is, is investigating is is the status or, or how much evidence they're finding. Because one of the the things about the FBI is that they generally get their whole case built before they go public with their findings. Because if they are going to prosecute someone, uh, by the time we find out about it, by the time the, the public finds out about it, uh, they, they've usually got a really strong case and they're ready to move forward. Hopefully, that's what's going on right now is the case is being built uh, and they can finally put an end to this, this criminal uh, and immoral act of, of selling baby body parts for profit. Now, if in fact they, there are criminal charges filed, if Planned Parenthood and the other organizations, many of them Planned Parenthoods from different locations, along with STEM Express, Advanced Bioscience Resource and Novo Gen X Laboratories, what does a criminal prosecution look like and what would it likely cost them 
in terms of uh, financially or uh, I mean, I'm not sure what a criminal prosecution would mean. Well, uh, that's another good question. And because, uh, you know, regardless of what what might result from one violation of this statute, um, the scope and the scale of these companies profiting off of baby parts means that that the, the the penalties would be substantial. Uh, I think that we are looking at the potential for individual people involved uh, to to be imprisoned, uh, and certainly the potential for for large uh, monetary fines or criminal penalties uh, for uh, for these violations. Uh, you know, a good result would be putting these companies out of business, frankly. Um, but we, uh, like I said, we won't know how this investigation is going. Uh, or, or if there's going to be a prosecution until the FBI has fully developed a case. Uh, and we can only hope that's what's coming yeah, uh, yeah. very soon. Well, at minimum, it would certainly put an end to the practice. Even the, the prospect of prosecution, I would think, would have a chilling effect on that practice moving forward. Now, if, if there is no prosecution, if they're allowed to do so with impunity, maybe not so much. But one would hope that this would at least have the impact of discouraging uh, the sale of baby body parts by Planned Parenthood to others uh, in the future. Absolutely. I mean, the whole point of this statute was to not incentivize abortion uh, for the purpose of harvesting valuable and profitable body parts, uh, as, as gruesome as that sentence sounds. Mm. Uh, but because there's never been a prosecution and because these companies are making so much money, uh, thousands of dollars off a single aborted baby, uh, they're just doing it for the money and without any fear of prosecution because there's, there's never been one. Uh, so perhaps just this prospect of a Justice Department that takes this law seriously uh, can reduce the practice uh, and can reduce the incentive to organizations like Planned Parenthood uh, to, to, you know, to exploit young women uh, to abort their babies. Now, the evidence that was presented, is it the, the information provided solely by the two journalists with the Center for Medical Progress, or is there other information along with it that's been presented? Well, there's no doubt the information from the Center for Medical Progress uh, uh, is what prompted the investigation. Yes. But in their report, their staff report from the Senate Judiciary Committee, they made it very clear that uh, they didn't rely on the videos from the Center for Medical Progress. They conducted their own investigation, obtained 20,000 pages of documents. And that's a lot of documents, mm-hmm. let me tell you. Uh, and they, they, they did their own investigation from scratch and came up with uh, the information that led to their recommendation that uh, these entities be criminally investigated uh, and prosecuted as appropriate. What they found was just that the amount of money being made by these companies uh, in no way could represent a a realistic uh, recoupment of costs, which is all the statute actually allows. Uh, There's no doubt that these companies were making a profit and a steep profit uh, from the sale of these parts. And uh, and that's why it was really a no-brainer for the Judiciary Committee to recommend a criminal investigation. Well, I appreciate the role that Liberty Council is playing in this investigation as it's uh, moving forward in the FBI. Certainly, we'll continue to follow this with great interest. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you again for having me. Appreciate it. Again, uh, Roger Gannam is an attorney. He's Assistant Vice President of Legal Affairs at Liberty Council. And the Senate Judiciary Committee has recommended to the FBI, in fact, some months ago, that they investigate Planned Parenthood. The FBI now 
uh, indicating that they have received that uh, request and the supporting evidence, and uh, they are investigating, and they uh, may um, file criminal charges against Planned Parenthood. We don't know whether or not that's a they're close to that or what, but anyway, they've indicated that's what they're uh, investigating. Up next, we're going to talk with Josh Temple. Now, you may know that name, or at least his face. You won't see it today, but he's the host of DIY Network's Disaster House. If there were a disaster here, a major earthquake, for example, do you know what you would need to have available? We'll talk about that in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, these last several weeks have been challenging. We've watched numerous natural disasters, Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma. You've got Maria, devastating floods in cities, wild bushfires in Oregon, Southern California, making us ask ourselves, would I know what to do if a disaster situation struck here at home? How do I prepare for the unknown? Well, Josh Temple is the host of DIY's popular Disaster House. He's a DIY expert, a licensed contractor, home improvement guru, uh, and he's... um, uh, covered and followed disasters for quite some time, disaster preparedness, I should say, tips that uh, can help us feel a little bit better about being prepared if something unexpected were to happen. Well, he joins us today to talk about just that. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, good to be here, Georgine. How are you? I'm doing fine. You know, most of us uh, like to imagine we will never be the subject of a disaster. I think about Mexico City. Uh, we tend to be in that uh, um, earthquake territory. Mexico City, unaffected. Uh, there was a lot of devastation. What do we need to, to think about uh, to make sure that we and our household are prepared for the possibility, remote as it may be, uh, that we might need um, to live through a disaster of some sort? Well, like you said, what do we need to think about? That the first thing, the first thing I think that everyone should should sort of think about is having their own plan, and the reason for that is because um, everyone's situation is different. Um, and and you know, I, I focus a lot on Los Angeles, um, where I live, and and we have our own sort of. Um, inherent problems just being in Los Angeles that perhaps Portland does not have. Um, but um, the plan is the first thing, and that's just with your certain situation, whether you have kids or pets or it's a large family or a small family, um, get a plan and, and, and get specific. Um, overall, um, there's the sort of whole disaster happens. Um, the, the, there's two schools of thought, and one is to hunker down, and the other is to bug out. Um, and this is for, this is sort of for the, uh, survivalists. This is the sort of hardcore. So I've kind of combined both because as you can see, um, or as, as everyone has seen, um, lately, um, even if you want to, to hunker down and you're prepared to, you might have to evacuate. depending on what exactly the disaster is. So I've, I've sort of put together a bunch of things that, that can fit both. Um, and so, and of course, the first one is always um, water. And um, the, the general rule um, for FEMA and, um, uh, is that it's one, gallon, one to two gallons per person per day, minimum of three days, which you know, family of four, that's, you're talking 12 gallons, that's, that's, a, lot, that's a lot of water. Um, but it's, it's something that, that I think whether you're going to stay or whether you're going to leave, you're going to need it. Um, so three days of water, um, and there's a, there's a couple different ways to get it. Yeah. Um, 
the 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 bottles of water you buy in the store um those aren't necessarily your best bet because they're they're the the bpa um you need bpa free plastic which is the bpa free means it doesn't the plastic doesn't start to to dissolve or degrade and and taint the water with chemicals so there's a lot of there's a lot of answers online i myself have um they're called water bricks and they're um, they're stackable and they're re- really sturdy. Um, and I've got six of them. Um, and Waterbricks isn't paying me. Um, <laughs> um, but this was a really good um, solution for us. There's a we have a family of four. We stack. I've got a little place in the garage. It stacks right up in my uh, in my whole disaster kit. Um, and just regular tap water in a BPA-free container will last you is 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 no problem for a, a year. We've got these drops that we got online, and we added them to uh, to the water, and now they're good for five years. Huh. So that's that's something really nice to take off your plate and not worry about it, you know, or every five years. <clears throat> um, and then the other thing with the water is. Um, uh, just to be safe, also have some like canteens or smaller camelbacks, you know, water bottles, something smaller, more portable, just in case you have to move and you don't want to move all of that yeah, water. Yeah. What about food? I mean, obviously food and water are the two main components. What should we think about in terms of food? Um, okay, so the, so food. One of the main things that uh, I like to tell people, and I've done a lot of research on this. You know, there's all the dehydrated stuff and the astronaut food and the MREs from the military, and all of those things are great because they last forever and you don't have to worry about it. The problem is, in a, in a, especially in a disaster or a crisis mode, your your body might not react to those foods if you have not if you don't eat them on a regular basis. So my my thing is your 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 dried goods, your your canned, you know, your beans and your protein bars and um, uh, beef jerky, the dried fruits, those sort of things that you do you do actually keep in your house. Those are the things I would recommend. Um, and you can you can have a rotating stock that way, so that if you know, I mean, it's you're buying it anyway, so you can always keep your stock rotating. Nothing ever gets old, um, and 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 it's and it's fairly easy to maintain. Um, so. So with that, it's, it's, it's also, like what I said with a plan, is, is what your family eats, allergies, you know, those sort of things are a concern. You know, you might have, I've got a five-year-old kid. I know I'm not putting a beat in that kid's mouth. It's not going to happen. <laughs> so i got, I got to make sure I have stuff. And, for, and also, if you have kids or even for yourself, in your stockpile, throw in some hard candy or something, some licorice, something that will last quite a while, something a little sweet, something a little calm you down, you know, some little treat. Because, again, this, this will be, of, of, you know, a crisis mode. So you're going to want to have a couple of things there to, to calm you yeah, down. stressful thing. Now, one of the things you recommend is what you call an apocalypse box. <laughs> that sounds pretty yeah. ominous, but it's pretty basic stuff. Yeah, so um, the whole thing started. So I did uh, Disaster House was funny um, because what what I what I do to houses is we 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 put we simulate disasters to a house to see what happens and what you need to do to fix it. And so that sort of started the ball rolling years ago. And my wife is 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 kind of going, well, what about 
what about our house? You know, what about what about our stockpiles? What, you know, we got to get ready yeah. for this. We got to get ready. And she kept she kept on me. And I so I, I said, fine, I'll make you your apocalypse box. <laughs> and and the apocalypse. So I sort of dubbed it that as a joke, but um, it is a really good idea. And this and the apocalypse box is great for whether you're going to stay or go. Um, and it's and it's the classic stuff, the first aid kit. Um, if you want, get a, even a, a first aid kit, a book, mm-hmm. just for to 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 handle some you know some minor injuries that you might not be able to get to the hospital for. Um, flashlights, batteries. Uh, we have a hand crank charger flashlight. So you hand crank it. It's a flashlight and it can charge your phone. Um, a, a big one that we have is a map book of California. Can opener, which also should go with your food, mm-hmm. um, knife, matches, um, and then other things that like like if you're going to be on the road, if you have to evacuate, even for even if it's for a day or two, uh, tissue, chapstick, sunscreen, um, and every member of the family should have their own backpack um, as as part to carry the load and part to have a couple of things that they like in there. Maybe it's a Harry Potter book or a frisbee or a, something like that. Um, so um, that's sort of the apocalypse box. Now, there's a couple. There's always other things that you can add, and that is if you have the room in your garage or if you have the room in your car. I mean, it, it, hatchets are great, or chainsaws, or you know, chainsaws. We we've seen everyone you know getting out on the roads and and having to cut down fallen trees. Um, if 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 you've got that, I mean, Portland. I'm get, I've been to, I love Portland, by the way. I've been out there. You guys got a lot more real estate than we do in, in L.A. We're a little tighter quarter. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Um, but, the, and in the last, the other, the other thing that I've, uh, that I've thought that sort of people don't think of is um, get a phone book. Uh, sorry, uh, your own, your own uh, bl- like a black book, a dress book. Yeah, yeah. Because you, everyone, uh, you know, I don't, I don't actually know my mom's phone number anymore. I, I mean, it's just a mom on my on my cell phone, and I press the press the name, and it comes up. Mm-hmm. You got you got to get those numbers because you you have to call people to tell people that you're all right, or you have to check on other people. So that's so that's another little trick um, that that I, I, I realized. People in the modern day, with with uh, with all our reliance on phone and Wi-Fi, need to need to look after. Yeah, be able to communicate. You also suggest cash in all denominations, passports, deed, insurance forms, and other important documents. You don't think about that now, but having access to them then could be very important. Sleeping bags, tents, propane, propane cooktop, pots and pans. Just practical things that one might need in the event of a disaster and you have to fend for yourself for a period of time. Fortunately, we have an infrastructure here and the, the chances that uh, something would last for more than a, you know, a week or two is much slimmer than, for example, Puerto Rico. But we do need to be prepared to fend for ourselves for a, a period of time. Hey, I appreciate your reminding us that, uh, you know, the unexpected can happen. And if we're prepared, then uh, we can survive it. Uh, and perhaps help some others along the way. Thanks so much for talking with us. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Again, uh, Josh Temple is the host of DIY Network's Disaster House. If you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back for the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I don't know about you, but when tragedy strikes, I always want to know, what is the church doing in the area where the event took place? Well, Ed Stetzer, who uh, is with the Billy Graham Association, had an opportunity to speak with one of his friends, who is a pastor in Las Vegas. And on the uh, Christianity Today online, he 
he uh, recalls that conversation. Now, Ed Stetzer, by the way, he holds the Billy Graham Distinguished Chair of Church Mission and Evangelism at Wheaton College. He's also the executive director of the Billy Graham Center and publishes church leadership resource through Mission Group. Well, he spoke with uh, Pastor Pittman. Uh, asking him what's going on in the churches in Las Vegas in the aftermath of the shooting. You wonder, is the church mobilized? Are the people traumatized? What is the the general response? Well, Pastor Pittman says that the churches in Las Vegas have a great spirit of collaboration. Many churches are hosting prayer services and prayer vigils throughout the day. He's referring, of course, to yesterday, but the work continues. We've opened our campus up all day for prayer and have encouraged our people to go to a blood bank and donate blood. There's a huge need right now. We're mobil- We've mobilized some of our trained certified trauma grief counselors to be on site at Mandalay Bay in response to their request to counsel those experiencing the horror of this tragedy. We will also be addressing this uh, from our pulpits on Sunday and dedicating our service to helping God's people and our city process this tragedy from a biblical worldview perspective. I've talked to other pastors, he says, who will be doing the same thing. Every pastor with whom I've spoken has said we are in it together and want to serve one another. Well, then he was asked how did he, he first responded when he heard about the event that took place yesterday, or actually last, uh, it was Sunday night, but we learned about it, uh, most of us, in the morning. He said that that day, yesterday, was his birthday, and he, when he woke up with his phone buzzing continuously, his first thought was they were birthday texts. Then he picked up his phone, he read the horror of what had just taken place, he said his heart broke for his city. He thought of all the families that were in crisis who had no idea this would be their Monday morning. Uh, he immediately thought of Psalm 46.1, we can run to God in moments of crisis, and we need to encourage others to do the same. He was then asked, what do you say to the people in the church in moments like these? And Pastor Vance says, on a day like today, there are many things we don't know, but what we do know is that God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He's quoting, of course, from Psalm 46.1. This is not a time to run from God. Instead, it is a time to run to God. He is our shelter and a refuge where we can find peace and comfort in moments like these. This is a dark day in our city, but the darker the darkness, the brighter the light of the gospel. Today is a day for the church to rise up and demonstrate the love and life of Jesus to those who are hurting. There is hope in him. Well, Pastor Vance was then asked, how do tragedies like these impact our theology and our understanding of God? And Pastor Vance responds that tragedies like this remind us of how little control we have of so many things in our lives and how much we need someone to inf- someone infinitely greater than us to turn to. And the Word of God reminds us that that's exactly who God is, who our God is. He is one who can we can turn to, we can trust, even when we don't understand. He is good and He is always at work. Psalm 23 reminds us that He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. That means He can turn battlefields into banquet tables. Our God can be trusted. Tragedies like this cause all of us to think about what we really believe. I'd I'd be lying if I didn't say I have a lot of unanswered questions, but I know the God who has the answers. Today is a day to run to him. Then he was asked, how is the community responding as a whole? What would you say to the rest of us who are watching from some distance? And Pastor Vance, and again, uh, he is the pastor of um, senior pastor at Hope Church in Las Vegas. He responds by saying the community of Las Vegas is strong. The law enforcement community and the first responders in Las Vegas are some of the best in the world, and they have demonstrated 
that by the way they have handled this horrific event. On a day like today, and again, he's responding to uh, questions yesterday, my heart is broken for this city, but I've never been more proud to call this my home. People only know Las Vegas as Sin City, in quotes, but in reality, it is a city of 2.2 million people who love their families, who work hard every day in pursuit of the American dream. The church in Las Vegas, the churches rather in Las Vegas have an incredible spirit of kingdom collaboration and are working together to minister to a city that is hurting. Pray for our city. Pray for the families impacted. Pray for the manifest presence of God to uh, to fall on our city. And that's the perspective of one pastor who is charged with ministering to this uh, city, to this larger congregation as part of what he refers to as the uh, kingdom collaboration of churches uh, in that city of 2.2 million. So if you uh, were wondering if you needed some help and how to pray, he's asking that we would pray for the city, pray for the families who've been impacted, for the manifest presence of God to fall on our city. And I would include praying for the churches that they would move forward with wisdom and compassion uh, and demonstrate the love of God and make uh, make a welcoming place for people who have unanswered questions and whose hearts are despairing. Again, Las Vegas pastor uh, Vince Pittman, who is the senior pastor at Hope Church in Las Vegas. Well, tomorrow on the program, maybe you can help me with uh, with this, James, because I don't have my uh, screen open. Um, you had scheduled John Bona from Liberty from Liberty University. And they have written a piece. I think it's only an online publication, which will let you know how to uh, how to download. It's on education, and we're going to talk with them um, about that. And then on Thursday, we'll talk with Jeff Kinley. He's the author of The End of America, Bible Prophecy, and a Country in Crisis. The book is published by Harvest House. And in light of many of the uh, questions and challenges that people have, what do the scriptures tell us? And what can we know? What should be our primary focus in trying to understand the the times that we live in as well as uh, what the future holds? I'm not sure that we're intended to know um, every detail. I'm not sure that we're intended to um, try to interpret every event that takes place in our lifetime in light of Scripture with a clear understanding, because we do know that there are some things that we will not and cannot know. We're not intended to, but we're going to talk about what the Scriptures do say and how uh, those of us who take them seriously uh, might look at um, what the what they say about our time and the near future. So that's coming up uh, tomorrow on the program, or I should say Thursday on the program. In the meantime, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And I hope you have a great night. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.